Good morning, uh, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It's Monday, May the 22nd. Uh, I'm delighted to have with us today Omar Najia, Global Head of Derivatives at BB Energy, Vandana Hari, Founder and CEO of Vanda Insights, and James McCallum, CEO and Chairman of Equity Group and Professor of Energy at Strathclyde University. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this Monday morning. Good morning. At the start of uh, what could be an interesting week. Van Damme, let me go to you first, although I kind of feel like we're settling into a bit of a sort of comfortable malaise in the energy markets with everything quite steady, oil steady below $80, uh, demand sort of sentiment, negative sentiment settling in. Are we are we settling in for a less volatile second half of the year, do you think, all things considered? Um, good morning and, and afternoon from, from Singapore to everyone. So I think um, I'm not um, seeing a sort of low volatility settling in sort of mood for the second half of the year. If you look at just the very short term, uh, I think the next few days, we're probably going to see a, quite a bit of volatility. Uh, obviously, there's uh, the game of brinkmanship going on in Washington now with the U.S. debt ceiling drama. Uh, I expect prices to um, get a fair bit of uplift once uh, a deal is done. Of course, we're all assuming there will be a deal, even if it happens right uh, at the very last possible moment. But, you know, if you if you look beyond that, um, I think as soon as the deal is done, uh, attention goes back to the general sentiment over global global economy. Uh, which I, which is why I suspect the volatility will remain because we have this tussle going on between uh, a Fed which has been intent on uh, conveying a very hawkish message, and a market which has been betting that the Fed is going to start cutting rates anytime. So I, I think that tussle will keep the volatility alive. I think in general, there is uh, a downward pressure on prices throughout the second half of the year. I think just the sort of lackluster economic growth in China combined with worries over the economy, especially the US and Europe. And, and of course, the expectation is in Europe as well. The ECB will have to continue uh, keeping very tight monetary policy. So I'm, what I'm seeing broadly for the second half of the year uh, is a continuing slow downtrend, but within that plenty of volatility. Okay, Omar, on that point of a continuous slow downtrend, which we've kind of seen more or less since the start of the year, putting sort of China Q1 growth, which was relatively healthy. Um, but you were saying, uh, you know, the last few sessions that we've had you on is that, is that you know, you are long, medium, long term, more bullish for world prices again at some point. Obviously, something's going to have to trigger that. But do you, do you think that, you know, we are going to have now, would you reassess that and say, you know, we we are going to see a weeker second half than we were expecting a couple of months ago. From the evidence that we've seen so far in the market. No, no, because I don't I don't believe, you know, I mean, I keep saying I really don't believe that you know, headlines and news and whatever is what drives markets. I really don't. Otherwise, people would have whiplash. They couldn't keep their heads on because one day it's like that. There's going to be no no debt thing. There is going to be a debt thing. So surely people know there is going to be a debt thing, a, a debt deal, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, not think about it. If you ask people, they'll tell you, sorry, 3% is uh, no deal, 97% deal, right? So why is the market down, uh, whatever it is, 74 cents? 
I mean, it does make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So anyway, so my point is, I was talking earlier, if you take a chart of, of Brent, Brent is better looking than, than WTI in terms of what I want to do. If you look at it from, this, from, from early July, if you draw a line from that high and you draw a line downwards, you can, you can, you can get three highs on that. So three points mark that downtrend. So once you break that downtrend, you're going to be breaking a correction that's been ongoing since the since July 2022, coming on for a year, right? Which in my view is quote unquote long enough. So if that happens, uh, then I would get really really bullish. The question is, I mean, for me, we we keep setting these lows, 60, $64, $63.60. We keep bouncing $10, $20 a barrel. So we'll see if the same thing happens that this time. But if we break that downtrend line, then I'd get really bullish. And and you could you could look at each market individually. You could look at equities. You could look at WTR. You could look at gold. You can look at each market individually. But when you try and kind of try and complicate stuff and say, yes, but if gold goes up, that means equities go down. If equities go down, that means that oil goes down. That's not true. So I've, I've given many examples when oil and equities have gone completely separate ways. One is flown and the other one is dumped, but people have short memories. So they can tend to kind of, you know, believe this stuff, but it's not true. So eventually everything comes together and sinks, but it doesn't mean that if you're bearish equities, you should be bearish oil. It just doesn't mean that at all. Okay, I mean, and, and a lot of what you're describing there is, is technical, it's sentiment-driven, and, and, you know, whether it's directly linked or not. But, James, let's look at the fundamentals on the ground. We have had figures coming out of China, obviously, which is a big uh, number that people look at, obviously, for the whole recovery this year in oil prices and oil demand. Uh, of course, we've still got Europe and, and U.S. to consider in terms of their economies. But, I mean, fundamentals on the ground, a lot of people are saying those are still quite strong, actually, and that negative sentiment and technicals are sort of outweighing that, that potentially tight supply that's to come in the next few months. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, obviously, we can look at the moves and we do on a daily basis as the, the OPEC are taking. But I think if you look beyond OPEC in terms of the supply market, you look at the super majors um, on the other side of, of, of that coin. And what you see is that since the beginning of the year, it, it, it's really been a case of minor consolidation, particularly in the United States, steady decline from the beginning of the year in terms of rig count, you know, a 10 to 20% fall in terms of the services um, company index, which tends to show you that even where we were at the beginning of the year, where quite a lot of work was being done in recompletions, et cetera, et cetera, it's not flowing through into new drilling. So the, the, the rhetoric which is around where is supply going to come from, for me, it remains the dominant, dominant theme. Obviously, um, the, the China argument is on the, is on the demand side of that equation, the India um, uh, continued growth story is on the demand side of that equation. But as Omar quite rightly says, you know, Europe, you know, not looking um, very healthy. Uh, the United States trading sideways uh, at the present moment in time. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're getting used to waiting for something that kind of kicks the market forward. And for me, 
if anything defines where we are right now, it's just enormous fence sitting whilst everybody waits for some kind of a sign as to as to which way we're going to go. And, you know, there, there is nothing clear in that particular space right now. As, as Omar says, everybody's pretty certain that debt ceiling will, will, will kick in. We had a good conversation um, a little bit earlier around, are we going down an inflation or a deflationary route? I think that's you know, that's where everybody's sitting, um, um, trying to analyse, briefly touched on that thing that affects us all, property, um, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people beginning to say, I'm going to get out of property. So so clearly Vandana's saying sort of broadly for her, the sentiment feels negative and sort of trending down. Um, for Omar, as always, um, uh, considerably more bearish in that, in that particular space, but clearly the sentiment is in a negative um, area and, and waiting for something to tell it that it's wrong. Okay, Vandana, I mean, let's look at China again, just look at the demand there, demand picture, domestic mm. demand for various products. You know, I mean, it's had a pretty strong Im fuel import uh, a few months on the whole. Uh, you know, the exports that we saw it ramping up the end of last year kind of tailed off for the time being. Record figures coming in uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, imports also from, from, from Russia as well in Q1. So what does that tell us about what's happening domestically on the ground there in terms of its economy uh, and its recovery? So Diala, when it comes to China, I would strongly encourage uh, those who are, you know, do not spend uh, every hour of every day looking at Asia or China in general to absolutely zoom out and not go by one figure or the other. So we've had four months of the year and we've had data for Jan to April, a wide range of data all the way from from. Q1 GDP to uh, what is happening with regard to uh, the trade exports, especially what's happening with regard to to crude imports, um, the imports from from Russia, as you mentioned. What's happening to retail sales? What's happening to industrial production? And if you look at the sum of that, it is that China is recovering, but it's a highly uneven recovery. The pace of recovery, all uh, taken every all the the metrics taken together, is far less impressive than what people had imagined at the start of the year, and that is what has prompted quite a few analysts to uh, moderate their expectations. What they had uh, even in back in December, when when the zero COVID uh, was starting to get lifted. Uh, the world was, the, or the oil market uh, analysts and observers were far more optimistic, and that optimism doesn't exist uh, anymore for, for good reason. So the way I look at it, it's a, it's a giant ship. Uh, it is in troubled waters. We have to acknowledge that because a big part of the Chinese economy is still dependent on exports, exports to the U.S., exports to Europe, which are absolutely in troubled waters. So this ship is now trying to accelerate in stormy seas. It's going to face resistance. It's going to be slow. So, you know, Chinese demand went down quite substantially year on year last year, 2022. So of course it's going to climb because this year is mm -hmm. zero COVID has ended. 
But I guess the question for the oil markets is to what extent it's going to go up. So we see anything from the range of 500,000 barrels per day year on year to something perhaps the most optimistic figure I've seen is from the IEA, which is well above 1 million barrels per day year on year. I tend to be more on the conservative side of that range. I think Chinese economy will recover, but it's going to be patchy. Uh, there's just some systemic issues in the uh, economy. People are talking about crisis of confidence in China. The consumer doesn't have the confidence to invest in retail, to go out and spend. They're spending on, on food and entertainment, but that's not big ticket money, right? And then there's a crisis of confidence in the business sector because they are looking at the consumers and saying, if the consumer is not going to spend, you know, why should I be growing my business? Why should I be hiring the next 10 people? So that's where we are with China. Okay, thanks, Vandana. Omar, just on, on, on that front of sort of looking a bit more uh, specifically at, at, at products and what they're doing globally, but obviously China impacts that picture. Jet fuel uh, has had kind of, you know, a good, a good run the last few weeks. Diesel's kind of getting a little bit hammered still, isn't it, on the global front, uh, which obviously is a sig you know, signal about manufacturing industry, etc., you know, any what's 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 sort of being forecast on the product side going forward in terms of opportunities there for cracks, well, etc., or forecast? Uh, if you look, so the same thing has happened to Brent or, or anything in the oil market since J July 2022. Everything's come off, right? So everybody has sold the uh, diesel as as a as a crack, right? So they've sold the diesel crack, which is a good way to sell diesel. Uh, and they've come off. But I mean, everybody has sold them and everybody has short them, right? So um, if they go up, let's say tomorrow they say, you know, you get a news story saying, whatever, I don't know, Elon Musk is buying gas oil cracks or Pinocchio says buy gas oil cracks and they start going up. Then everybody who's sold, which is everybody, is going to not just panic, but get absolutely obliterated right that's that's point number one point number two is you know everybody keeps talking about you know facts this is a fact and this is a fact and this is a fact <clears throat> and i don't dispute any of it but I'm, what i'm trying to also kind of get across is the market knows all these facts everybody knows all these facts it's just that people come to different conclusions from looking at the same facts right so and and then and then, you know, the last point, if you look, look, take a look globally without kind of say, what's China doing and what's Vietnam doing and what's the US doing and all this kind of stuff. Look, look at it globally, right? So demand last year and demand this year broadly the same. Million barrel here, two million barrel here, whatever, same. Supply, same. Million barrel to me, same. And look at the price. Look at the price. The price is halved. So if it's the facts and if it's the numbers and if it's supply and if it's demand, why? Why is the price halved, right? So, so I think basically what, 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 what you have to understand is, you know, some markets, especially commodity markets, they, they, they do these highs, they do these blow off tops. They kind of, you know, go and then go some more and then blow off and just go stratospheric. And once they do, everybody just sells. It's not that they look and they say, well, you know, demand in China is going to be this much and, and that is going to be this. They just sell it. And then the market comes off. So eventually at some point, and I think that line on Brent that I was talking about, breaking that, will basically set them off. They're not going to be saying, look, 
demanders are going to come back, they're going to be saying everybody has sold, everybody's short, and they all need to buy back. So I think that line on Brent is going to be uh, important, much more so than, you know, focusing on, um, you know, the Fed increasing rates or decreasing rates or, or any of that stuff. At least that's how, um, you know, I like to uh, kind yeah. of uh, trade. And I mean, those headlines on the Fed, of course, that we've had now for a year now, James, you know, I think even you could argue, OK, no one knows how much further it's going to go or if it start to retreat. But again, some kind of settling in, uh, we would argue, has, has happened. Inflation has steadied. Maybe it's not continuing to go down. Uh, James, let's just talk a bit about gas, because th those are also prices that have come down quite significantly if you look at you know, the year, year on year. Uh, and, and, you know, Europe seems a bit comfortable now in terms of forward-looking supply, not too much panic. But, you know, if we do see a surge in China in the second half of the year, unexpected, it's going to impact where U.S. LNG goes, et cetera. And, and you know, there is, there is a limited capacity there as well, isn't there, in terms of short term. So where's the sentiment there, do you think? Uh, and also including, you know, what Russia might or might not do further with its gas supply. Yeah, I think the, the, the gas story um, is an incredibly important story because it's obviously a story around uh, electricity and electricity is a story around growth. Um, you know, one of the things which is interesting, listening to Friday's talk around the potential for where uh, Iranian oil production is likely to go. I was interested that nobody talked about gas production in Iran. And, and um, you know, Iran remains one of the world's major, major potential sources of gas going forward. Um, and we focus constantly on the oil side of that story in that equation. You know, I, Europe, Europe currently feels like it's, it's broadly adjusting to a marketplace where it's, it's sourcing its gas from um, different sources and through different pathways. And I think that's, that's a very good thing. If I may, um, Diala, I'd like to just come back to a couple of points that both Vandana and, and Omar have made. First of all, Vandana is absolutely correct. The, the China story remains a two-part story, one of domestic growth uh, or not, and one of global growth or not. Um, and, um, you know, the story as to whether or not it's inflation or deflation, again, that's all about a growth story. Omar's point about the facts is absolutely correct, and therefore... We kick past the facts. Let's just touch for a second in on sentiment. You know, if China is recognizing at the present moment in time that domestic growth isn't going the way that it wants to, people don't have confidence in the market. That's one of Omar's facts. In terms of global growth, you know, let's not miss the fact that in the course of the last week, the rhetoric that's been coming out of the G7 summit has been very negative towards China in terms of where it's going to the extent that President Biden is calling upon his G7 counterparts and colleagues to, to, to move away from, from China imports into the country. And of course, you know, we don't spend very much time on, 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 on this podcast um, talking about the energy transition, but China's position in the energy transition is massive in terms of its ability, in terms of the supply of wind turbines, et cetera, et cetera. And so as we, as we look across the energy spectrum, if indeed Europe and, and the United States is going to pull away from China, where is the alternative? And, and right now, there isn't an answer to that. And in a world where interest rates are proving extraordinarily res resilient, and Omar was talking 
just before we came online that he sees interest rates actually increasing before they they get to a decrease. Um, I think I think that's um, a very um, uh, mixed view in the markets because, as as Omar also recognises, the markets are currently pricing in probably a twenty five point drop in terms of interest rates. But that's a, that's a very small drop in the ocean if what we absolutely need in Europe and the United States is a return to growth. And that's where the concern lies. So gas, I think, back to your original question, I think the different supply chains are emerging that will actually supply into that area. My concern would continue to be this negative sentiment that's coming out of the G7 countries. My concern would be the fact that over the course of the last five to 10 years, we have seen an increasing trend of the Middle East to look east in terms of its relationship, its conversation, and indeed China has continued to look into the Middle East only in terms of its supply. We are seeing a massive shift in terms of the energy dynamic and indeed the whole growth dynamic going forward. And, I, I, and, I, and to be honest, I think both, both our, our, my colleagues on the call this morning are identifying at, at best it's a drift sideways and, and more likely it's actually a, a drift down until we find out what happens next. And this, this, in, this, in this new balance, Vandana, uh, one of the G7, we have a headline this morning on the bulletin about the G7 meeting, uh, that, you know, that they struggled to convince uh, other nations to win over nations uh, courted by China uh, and Russia, i.e. the sort of positioning on the Ukraine war uh, and, and the neutrality there by countries like India uh, and China. Neutrality, you could argue, that's neutral or not. But Vandana, so what sent, you know, where are we at with that in terms of, Russia, and I'm not asking you to tell us where the war is going. We're kind of looking at a potential escalation coming up, apparently. But Russian oil supply, you know, price cap impact. Again, IEA saying it makes no difference what we do with any price caps from now on. You know, no one's really, it's not really doing anything except actually guaranteeing that Russian oil stays in the market, which, is, which was intended anyway. So do you see any dynamics changing on that front in the next few months for any reason? So also picking up from what James was saying about the sort of growing wedge that we have between the West and, and the East, if you will, um, I think one of the major points that perhaps the G7 leaders miss is that here in Asia, it's it's not about political friendships necessarily. A lot of these decisions, um, not necessarily of aligning yourself politically, but just deciding who you're going to trade with, which currency you're, you're going to trade in, whether you're going to um, follow the West in sanctions or you're going to do your own thing. Those decisions are driven by um, the economy, you know, purely uh, financial uh, commercial and economic right. considerations. And once G7 leaders realize that, I think it will be, you know, much easier for them to perhaps spend time on, on uh, rhetoric or uh, persuasion that will actually work. With China and India, as far as Russian supplies are concerned, look, they're getting those supplies at 30% discount. Uh, as long as they are below the price cap and you're not using a Western service provider, the West, Western allies themselves say there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, right? So why are they, why won't they buy it? 
they are not in this war. It's it's not about yes, Putin is right or Zelensky is right. It's not. It's about what's right for the Chinese population right now. What what does China need? to get from the world, to get itself, get its uh, economic momentum back. For India, what is what is it, what does the government need to do to get, uh, you know, to eliminate energy poverty, to get electricity to everybody in this, what is shaping up to be a very hot, hot summer, right? So as far as these relationships go, whether it's within BRICS or whether it's with, with regard to Russia, they are going to be driven entirely by economic uh, considerations. And I think, you know, the, the sooner G7 countries understand that, uh, the better. Absolutely spot on, Vandana, spot on. Uh, yeah, and of course, you know, even looking at the US itself with the elections now, we're in an election year, it's coming up, that's going to get more and more important, I suppose, in terms of the domestic audience that Biden's playing to. Let's have a quick look at that uh, a survey question, given demand concerns and kind of meaning, you know, we're not seeing as strong demand as perhaps we expected to be seeing so far and, go, and going forward. Is there any chance we could actually see $80 oil again this year? I mean, again, some people would say, you know, we have people saying $100 oil two months ago is still possible. And now the sentiment seems to be uh, shifting below 80. But let's see what everybody says about that. So are we actually going to see 80 again, uh, driven sort of by the fundamentals argument? Omar, um, in terms of the U.S. and sentiment there and the economy there and how that might be pulling on what happens in China in terms of production manufacturing, we're still seeing quite, uh, you know, a tight labor market. The economy is still performing OK. You're, you were saying earlier, yeah, you might see rates go up more than people are saying now they might. Banking crisis has forgotten. I mean, you know, it looks like things are looking pretty strong and steady in America. Um, but, you're laughing. But- yeah, how, how can they be looking? I mean, but they okay, are. I mean, so here, the numbers. No, 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 no. I mean, you have something. If you look at if you look at equity markets, let's call it the S and P, because biggest, most liquid. America is doing great, but debt has never been is at all time highs. Consumer debt, government debt, corporate debt, right? You had a that, I mean, that's been the case for a while now. So, so why do we keep yeah, talking about that? The, the, <laughs> sort of the, quo. Yeah, because because of something called reality. So basically, the rate of increase is becoming exponential. So now they're adding at least a trillion dollars of printed dollars a year, and that's going to go even higher. They're they're spending at least a trillion to finance their debt, right? So they're printing more and more. They can't, they, they, they can't, they, their debt is unsustainable. Corporate debt is unsustainable. Consumer debt's at all-time highs, right? 14%, one four of all US listed companies right, uh, don't make any money, lose money, right? So you, you, you have to understand, it's, it's, it's something called a, a bubble, right? And everybody's happy as long as that bubble is inflating. Nothing wrong with bubbles. They're, you know, like, you know, they're, they're transitioning from no bubble. So you have to respect the bubble, right? But when it gets pricked, it's, it's, it's finished, right? So the U.S. economy, however you meant it, and then people go on about like the labor market. Yes. So basically you had a guy who was paid $100,000 for one job. He doesn't have that job anymore. So instead of doing one job to earn 100,000, he's got to do three. 
So he's got to work at McDonald's, clean and drive a taxi. So oh, labor market's really strong. So, I mean, nobody, I mean, it's, it's, it's all extremely clear and it's all ex- extremely clear to people. So it's always the same argument. When? Everybody wants to know when is it going to happen? I mean, it's been going on since 2008 and it's, yeah, it's actually been going on since Nixon. He took the US dollar off the gold standard. And the only way you could grow the economy is through debt. Grow the economy, create more debt, grow the economy, create more credit, create more debt, create more credit, create more debt. (coughs) Well, what happens at the end of that cycle? You have to have a massive correction because you cannot, can all, let me give you another example. Let's say people stop accepting the US dollar. They say, no, thank you very much. Uh, We'd rather buy, we'd rather take a repeat. The US instantaneously is done, right? Because you understand how basically they export their inflation to the rest of the world, how basically being a reserve currency means anybody who has oil, who buys oil or any commodity, they take a cut on any dollar transfer anywhere on the planet, they could take a cut on. Without that, it's bye-bye. Absolutely, 100%. Should listen to what uh, Mark Rubio and all the rest of them keep saying about the dollar and sanctions and all the rest of it. But it's too late. The American economy... I mean, even the way you measure GDP. So as a measure of GDP, you include in this measure of GDP um, healthcare, right? So GDP spending on healthcare makes up, I think, like 20% of US GDP, 20%. Healthcare in the US, if you want to go do a blood test in in London, it will probably cost you 50 pounds. In the US, it's like $10,000 or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so forget about all that, all that, all these numbers people quote and look at GDP, look at this, look at this. Those are not quote unquote based on reality. The US economy is not doing at all well. If you look at <clears throat> the price of equities uh, and, and, and do that against, price that against the price of something real, which is the price of gold, you'd be stunned, you'd be surprised. Oh, the market went up 10% last year, <laughs> but inflation went up 20%. Yes, but I made this much. So no, I, I, I don't buy that for a second. I really don't believe that the US economy is, is very strong and, and jobs are doing amazing and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you just, I mean, honestly, without being funny, look at the leadership that you've had in the US, right? <laughs> We're What's not that? Let you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Uh, and nobody, nobody wants to ask any question, any question, right? Clearly, the guy is not in control of his faculties. Clearly. So who's running the show? Were they ever elected? And before that, you had Trump. I mean, look at the leaders. Look at Schultz. Look at Rishi Sunak. Look at the leaders that we're getting. Well, let's, the, let's talk about Europe. Let's give James, thanks, Omar. Let's give James the last word about Europe and not about the leaders per se, because that, you know, could go on and on about that. But again, again, economic sentiment there, this cost of living crisis that was so acute six months ago, James, has that dissipated a bit? I know kind of, you know, we're out of winter and out of this whole fuel price issue. But again, how, what's the sentiment there in Europe in terms of, um, you know, we've had positive stock market, equity market performance this year bit of a recovery uh, from where you're sitting. Yeah, yeah. Look, strong equity performance doesn't affect the, the, the man in the street. The reality is, is what's in their pocket affects the man in the street. And what affects that more than anything is, is 
is the cost of their mortgage, the cost of the groceries in the store. Um, that we are seeing um, certainly in, in many of those things, in, in, in many of the products in the supermarkets, a, a beginning of a fallback. So I guess that, again, back to my word of earlier on, the sentiment is, is that inflation would appear to be feeling like it's coming under control. And just picking up on Omar's point, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit different to Omar in this particular space because I think the Fed were caught out before in terms of they were too slow to raise interest rates to curb inflation. Um, and I think they won't be caught out again in terms of um, the, the sentiment that they wish to send to the market. And so for me, if, if I had to put my money on anything by the end of the year, I think there will be an interest rate cut as they as they try to send a message that they're focused on growth. And that's both within Europe and America, because let's let's be frank, the European banks take the lead from what the actual Fed does now. You know, that will be a, a gesture to show that they want to kickstart growth again in, in the West. To, to, to acknowledge Omar's point, you can always reverse that down the line if they think that they've got that wrong. But they need to show that they're back in control of the argument, both up and indeed down. And so for me, um, in, inflation probably has, 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 has peaked for now in, in Europe. And so we need a symbol around growth and that symbol around growth will be a small cut in interest rates before the year's out. Okay, I mean, inflation has peaked, but it has not got down to at least what the Fed is, is, has been stating it wants to get it to, which is the 2%. Uh, and clearly that, that, that could be adjusted to, to something a little bit less, less extreme. Thank you very much. I've only run out of time. Thank you to Vandana Harry, Amin Ajia, and James McCallum for joining us this Monday morning. And have a great week ahead.